or welcome back. This is a bonus episode of the Primrose Chronicles only announced to fans of the Primrose Chronicles on that private Facebook page. It's in response to the request of many and as a thank you for your encouragement and feedback as we've stepped back in time together by way of these past six months of TPC episodes. Hope it also means that you've enjoyed the ride. This bonus chapter will not be announced on the Primrose Chronicles Facebook page or in any other nostalgia pages that I usually send notifications to. Folks may find it on a podcast app or the Primrose Chronicles website, but it will be because they're looking for the Chronicles in general. You are getting a first listen. Today's installment will try to fill in the blanks between episode 16, the Indiana State Fair, the family years, and this week's regular drop on Thursday, the day the Beatles went to the fair. Its working title? Bonus episode number one. Yes, there will be others. Unleashed to gainfully employed. So here goes. It seemed like forever. But finally, the parents of the eldest young offspring decided that he could be freed from the constraints of family caravans and once a year carefully scripted trips to the fair. And this was huge in my mind. A few weeks before its opening, a solemn and a bit hesitant announcement was made. This fair season, at the end of the summer before my junior high years, I would no longer require adult supervision to take in the sights, sounds, smells, and for my mother, dangers of the Indiana State Fair on my trips down Ralston across 42nd and into the wonderland that I've been trying to convince mom and dad I was ready for unsuccessfully for at least the last two seasons. I would still have times to be back home by, and a failure to adhere to the curfews would result in a denial of attendance privileges for a time. A second offense would mean no further opportunities for fair attendance without a parent in my party. In other words, a return to the family years that I spoke of so contemptuously in the last episode. I was determined that would not happen. That is not to say things did not happen that dad and especially mom would have been disappointed by if not downright angry about if they knew of our escapades. It just meant that we were always in the doors of our respective homes ahead of the bewitching hour of curfew. It also meant that we usually went right to bed so as not to spill the beans by over-relaying our evening's events. I say we because it seems in hindsight that the Primrose Mom Squad had discussed releasing their charges into the fair's operation. I have no idea who brought it up, how much discussion there actually was, but within 24 hours of hearing the news personally, each of my buddies, Strainy, Mills, Ward, also had gotten the word. Limits had been lifted off our state fair exploration methods, and we immediately began planning our potential two weeks of near-daily visits. First order of business, make sure we had enough to purchase the two-week youth admission pass. It was less than $10, and a real bargain if we went every day. Those of us with paper routes began immediately socking away tips, our part of the paper route collections, even visiting the most delinquent accounts to clear our books. I'm sure Tony's hardware took a hit. Remember episode 15? As we avoided the shelves of snacks and pops so as not to be tempted with digging into our designated stash. Straight to the paper station, pick up the papers, and head for our route. Then straight home without a stop at Stakes Drugs, while I still had an afternoon news route. And when I graduated to an AM star route, temptations were fewer, yes. But there were still donut shops and the Sunday visit to White Castle on 38th Street. 
I frequented none of these fine dining establishments, all in an attempt to have enough for the many delicacies the fair concessions offer, as well as the midway rides I had as yet been unable to experience under the previous parental restrictions. I hoped to check them all out, and more than once if they were worthy. Mills and I concocted an additional ploy to add to our financial reserves. We explained to our folks that while we would not be accompanying our respective families on family day to the fair, we were still considered part of the brood, so perhaps we could receive at least a portion of what they would have spent on us had we been in the caravan. We might have gotten the idea from church and a twisting of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son who asked for his inheritance. Unlike the younger brother in Luke 15, our rehearsed speeches got us nothing but a good laugh from our adult audiences, but they did appreciate the effort. Our only other effort, I recall, was collecting pop bottles door-to-door and returning them to Street Grocery, 46th and Norwaldo, to redeem the containers for two cents each. I'm not sure how Stranium Ward got their money. They didn't live on Primrose. Stan did have a times route, but, but come opening day, after we finished chores and routes, having bought our passes earlier in the week, we made our way to leave our fresh imprint on the proceedings and looking forward to it leaving its new impressions on us. As we have with our families, we set out on foot down Ralston to the 42nd Street pedestrian gate, flashing our pass, waiting for it to be hole-punched in the opening day box. Our first stop was the farm equipment exhibits. No longer relegated to the staple of the farm, the tractor, which we were always lifted on and off of by our folks, we climbed over and atop every other implement necessary from planting to harvesting to baling. First order of business was always to see if the engine cranked. Each of us found an unoccupied piece of agricultural machinery and quickly scampered to its highest point, looking around to see the other mechanical steeds that the other guys had mounted. Most did not even have a key in the ignition. Those who did had the battery disconnected. But of course, we tried to fire them up anyway. And then, there was that one. And I was the pretend operator. Like all the others I had ascended, I sat atop the tallest piece of equipment on the International Harvester display lot, inside its tent or outside, and in this case, it was inside. The tent had probably been erected around it because... Its operator perch was nearly nestled among the upper tent folds. What was it? It was a combine, so-called because from it you could combine several activities of the fields using one piece of machinery. In circles that knew all that it could do, it had the nickname King of the Harvest, dropping its side wings on each side of the center platform that moved up and down the fields It could cut a swath about 40 feet wide, completing the tasks of reaping and threshing and gathering and winnowing of the crops as diverse as corn and wheat and oat and rye and barley and others. Too much of a city slicker to know the definition of all those terms? Google it. They are the fundamental terms of the harvest. Anyway, that was what I was on, a combine. And as I checked out the cab, I looked down next to the steering wheel, and lo and behold, the key sat there in the ignition. Well, of course, that warranted a closer look, meaning I reached out and turned the key. But unlike earlier attempts, you see this happened in about my third year of running free at the fair, it cranked and sprang to life. 
Now, I didn't even have my 48 Plymouth yet. I was only 13 or 14, so I panicked, and I pulled a lever. Well, that proved to be the gear shift, and that behemoth of the pastures began crawling, rolling slowly toward the corner of the tent. If it continued on its current path, it would reach the canvas and likely bring down the entire structure upon visitors and equipment alike. So I did the only thing I could do. I jumped off the back, and I headed for the tent opening, leaving countless others to fend for themselves. Just before exiting, I turned to witness the impending carnage. Fortunately, calmer heads than a terrorized teen prevailed. The closest salesman slash international harvester representative bounded up the recently vacated cockpit, deftly jammed the gear shift into stop position, turned off the key all in one motion, and the combine abruptly stopped, seeming inches from escaping into the great outdoors and taking yards of canvas with it. Moving down the road quickly, zigzagging through tents and buildings in case we were being followed, Separating so at least one of us would be able to tell the other families where to post bail, we rendezvoused under a large tree in the grass across from the midway. Now, believing we were out of harm's way, physical or criminal, we reviewed the proceedings. Larry, Dan, and Stan had witnessed the entire event. All said it seemed like slow motion and were of the general consensus that I would die an ignoble death and they'd have to explain what happened to my folks. That would probably end their fair experience for that summer, at least, and they would miss me. They were sentimental that way. Few incidents rivaled the one in the International Harvester tent, but there were the recurring ones that each year led to attempts to beat our previous ones of the past year in number, in speed, in bravado, and in some cases, a bolder and bolder effort on our part. Larry and Stan raced annually to the top of the fire tower and back down. Dan and I dutifully kept time. Larry was the annual champion, and so in the last year, the year before, we all either got jobs with the fair commission or at one of the concessions or had girlfriends, uh, Stan decided that he was going to win. He tried to leap from the landing closest to the bottom over the side in order to hit the ground ahead of Larry. He did not. In fact, he lay there motionless for a moment causing us to begin developing our obligatory last condolences and words of comfort for his parents over his passing. He then arose, bruised, scraped, and once again a loser of another fire tower run. He was otherwise unhurt, and once the rangers realized that, we were banned from the Department of Forestry and Natural Services exhibit for the duration of the fair's run. The very fact that we could now wander the midway, riding what we wanted, stopping where we wanted, looking at what we wanted, made even the shortest pass-through in an evening magical. Up close and personal, we saw the wild mouse, the swings, the loop-the-loop, the ferris wheel, the double ferris wheel, and dozens of other potential death traps our mothers had warned us about, and we rode them all. We could not enter or exit those grounds without passing the stages on the sideshows and pause to hear the barkers assure all who would listen that they would witness nothing as strange or exotic as they would see if they would put down their money and step behind the curtains. In a few cases, we did. To see the world's largest cow, horse, pig, 
We hesitated to look at the oddities of nature beyond other screens like the two-headed snake, the bearded lady, and the alligator boy. And we were denied entrance into the girly show, the burly queue, even though we said we heard the comedian was hilarious and that was the only reason we were in line. Away from the sideshow tents, among the games of chance and rides, we saw and met and talked to other teens from all over the city. Different occurrences on different nights kept us coming back, even when our funds were running low. No noteworthy tales took place in the Midway, at least until I worked for the Fair Commission, if I'm being honest. Others have stories, perhaps me? I got nothing. I can tell you about the competitions at the Dairy Bar. Sponsored by the Indiana chapter of the American Dairy Association, they consisted of plopping down a nickel at the cash register, picking up an 8-ounce cup, and then stepping across to one of the multiple milk dispensers, filling your cup with ice-cold whole milk. Again, and again, and again. It was all you could drink for a nickel. And the contest was on to see who could down the most cups. Sure, for the average customer to all things dairy, the average order might include a grilled cheese and a chocolate shake. But for four Northeast Side teens, at least... It was all about the cold white cow juice. On a hot, humid August day, that milk tasted so good, to a point. At first, we couldn't drink it fast enough, and then we slowed just to savor it, and then we drink our fill for the moment, carefully fold our cups so as not to tear or perforate it, and step outside, the contents seemingly sloshing in our bellies. And the August heat and the humidity that had driven us into the air-conditioned building to imbibe, now did its number on us to slowly make us increasingly nauseous. The dairy bar sat in the main thoroughfare just down from the Coliseum. The shuttles that were pulled by tractors made a loop of the entire fair, stopping regularly at scheduled exhibits and venues for folks to get on and off. I mention this because we did not have to wait too long to fall onto one of the shuttle benches, hoping longing for the nausea to pass, and not in too graphic a fashion for the lookers-on. Funny how a trip around the fairgrounds, even with its stock barn smells mixed with cotton candy smells and barbecue, settled a queasy stomach. So much so that by the time the shuttle arrived back around in front of the dairy bar, we were ready to jump off, pull out our cups, and re-enter for another round. Oh, to be young and stupid again. In the three years the gang and I took to the annual event, I think we collected more memories of missteps and unexpected occurrences that can be recounted in this chapter of TPC, or even remembered if we could. Maybe there will be other seasons of Primrose Chronicles when they'll arrive back in my memory for telling. For now... Let's forge ahead in this tweener bonus episode from the years when we were free and dangerous to ourselves and others to the summer of our 14th year. That was the summer I moved from that world of fair experience to being gainfully employed during those two weeks of the summer spectacle. In those days, age 14 was the earliest you could get a job at the fair. Vendors with concessions on trailers would begin arriving the week before the fair's opening, and the myriad booths that would be hawking souvenirs and selling the unique foods that you couldn't get during the year at any respectable grocery settled into their leased spots across the fairgrounds landscape. And right alongside the trailers came the hopeful employees. 
Nearly 1,000 people were needed to fully staff the nearly 500 kiosks and cubicles and full-blown kitchens on wheels, and Hoosiers came from all over the capital city and beyond to land that perfect position for the last two weeks of summer. What made a perfect position depended on the person applying. All hourly wages were basically equal. An adult seeking a little extra cash from a temporary second job, maybe to help pay some bills or have a little extra cash for Christmas, perfect meant the right hours. For many teens and college students heading back to school in the fall, another attractive perk was free food, or at least highly discounted during your shift. Yet others liked being paid in cash without taxes and FICA taken out. Still others were attracted by the bonus commission element available on product sales made to the passers-by. For those of us just entering the formal workforce, we were looking for anything that paid. To that point, our parents sometimes had something to say. Mine did anyway. As with many parents, both mine offered cautionary tales of fly-by-night peddlers who worked their local laborers with long hours making promises of big paydays, only to pull out and get down the road a day early, leaving a quickly formed staff just as quickly bilked out of two weeks of wages. Those actual situations were few and far between as the fair board tightened up their contracts with mobile merchants, usually requiring financial bonds and binders for first-time or infrequent independent operators. Nonetheless, even the possibility of such an outcome, along with the fortuitous connection made with a fair official through a high school classmate, I was directed to make application with the Indiana State Fair itself, for one of the nearly 1,000 positions the event itself needed to operate. In mid-July, a job fair of sorts was held on the grounds in one of the exhibition halls, and folks, again old and young, filled out forms, provided callback numbers, and notification addresses that supervisors could pour through and form their teams and work crews, letting those hired know of training dates and orientation days leading up to the fair's opening. In exchange for the training and regular work shifts, if hired, you would be paid a slightly higher wage than the jobs on the Midway by a check guaranteed to be good by the state of Indiana. Yes, taxes were withheld, but that was like a forced savings account coming back from the state and federal government in a check in the spring of the next year because they were taken out as if we received that kind of money every week throughout the year, and of course we didn't. The other, somewhat of a deterrent for some, was that the checks from the fair commission did not arrive until two weeks after the fair's closure, the necessary delay for an operation that large and complex. That, too, was a double-edged sword. You see, you waited for your payday, and that required your parents floating you alone for the start of school with its supplies and clothing if you didn't have your paper route to fall back on. But when that check came, you were in high cotton. Well ahead of that check, we went to work. Being among the youngest and the most inexperienced, our work habits would be tested in positions like parking lot attendants, first off-site, like across the street on 38th Street, or in the expansive field adjacent to the Indiana School for the Deaf, just south from our house on Primrose between 44th and 42nd. Then if you showed yourself capable of directing traffic into parking spots, you might move on to a gate as security. Well, actually, it was crowd control and uh, 
directing traffic toward the lots, but it was less walking and it maybe even would mean a chair to sit on. Even early gate opportunities were either strictly pedestrian gates open only to fairgoers with passes or vehicle gates open only to cars with current fare stickers in their windows that would take them and allow them to be in designated parking spots. We wore fluorescent vests and official Indiana State Fair hats to designate our official positions and that our instructions were to be heeded, and for the most part they were. I held those types of positions during my first stint as an employee of the Indiana State Fair. And then, receiving my first windfall check from the state late in September, I was convinced that I would return as a veteran the next year, and did so right up through my 16th year, and each year I returned, I was awarded with new positions of responsibility. Perhaps it was my growth spurt, in addition to my work ethic, of course, but by the end of the second week of my second stint as a fair worker, I was invited to occasionally take on a second shift, evenings and all night as a security guard. No, I was not issued a sidearm or even a baton, not even a walkie-talkie. I was given a route to walk, simply to offer the idea of safety and protection to those who made their temporary home on the grounds during the fair, and to offer the idea of vigilance to those who might seek to be there for nefarious ends. We were given no training offered no encouragement to deter individuals who might be on the grounds unofficially, merely to observe and report to supervisors who made their rounds regularly during the 12-hour shift. Usually folks out during our tour of duty were guys and girls from the animal barns, escaping the heat from their barracks above the livestock, and that made for some wonderful conversations, even flirting, but no more. Still, it was a nice break from the normally monotonous walk-around. If our patrol took us around through the midway, we saw the workers and performers there out of their makeup and out from under the bright lights, and we witnessed a very different lifestyle than the clean-cut family home life we had left to come to work that evening. For the most part, they ignored us, and we avoided interaction with them, lest they convince us to leave with them at fair's clothes for the high life of the road as a carny. Yeah, Mom had warned me about those kind of people as soon as I began work on the night shift. That shift started at 6 p.m., went until 6 a.m., paid more, and came really with kind of a sense of status. Not everyone was asked to serve on that team. And all in all, it was a highlight of my fair employment, especially when I was assigned to check cars entering the parking lot to the left of the main gate of Fall Creek Parkway. This was the lot designated for fair officials and state dignitaries. It also housed a single-wide trailer that provided a waiting room of sorts for performers with evening shows at the Coliseum or the grandstands, which were up on the main thoroughfare. My job pleasantly welcomed those with permits, even if I had no clue who they were, waving them down into the lot below where they could be parked and board small fare vehicles that would deliver them to their meetings or special seats. I also welcomed performers who would await their performances in the air-conditioned trailer, and I also kept adoring fans out on the sidewalk away from the stars. The fans were never really unruly, merely hoping to catch a glimpse of someone that they had previously only seen on TV or the big screen. 
I personally had Andy Williams, Pat Boone, and Tennessee Ernie Ford pass within feet of me in their chauffeured limos. Mr. Williams even waved first. I had a story for my mom that night. The closest there was to a mob, I guess, had occurred a few years earlier when teen heartthrob Rick Nelson was a headliner. And even then, crowd control was not necessary. And then every year, just before Labor Day, the curtain came down on the Indiana State Fair. In a few short days, it returned to the empty expanse that sat there 50 weeks out of the year, except for the small events in exhibit halls occasionally, and more frequently the single events that took place at the Coliseum and the Grandstand track. I now had to look for steady employment, but I was always planning, Lord willing, to be back the next summer. One evening, however, stands out, and rightfully so, September 3rd, 1964. And it was the tale that stands alone as the next episode of the Primrose Chronicles, The Day the Beatles Came to the Fair. This last-minute bonus edition, I think, has proven necessary to get me your host and narrator, and hopefully you as the listener ready for the story of a -a once-in-a-lifetime event. Even though its release is right around the corner, My desire was to set the stage, frame the background, and illustrate the activity so that the actual event that I was involved in could be laid out clearly in detail. I think I'm about ready to share that tale. It's only a few hours, a couple of days, until that drops. In the meantime, I'm going to slip back into the Primrose Lane of uh, Primrose Avenue of my mind and take some notes to share with you when you decide to join me again. Until then, blessings.